This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Gina Martin-Adams back with us. She is Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist alongside Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stock Editor, of course, the author of the chart and stock of the day. Dave, let me start briefly with you. What's the most important thing we need to understand about this market today? Well, it looks like the headline about the travel is getting at least a little bit of attention from stock investors. The S&P 500 is at its high of the day. Now, it, it, you're talking up three-tenths of a percent. So that's just the kind of day it's been, not a whole lot of direction. And uh, you look at the 11 main industry groups, you see communication services as a standout. And that's really Facebook in large measure. Shares are up 6% at the moment. So people are getting a little bit excited about that company. And then beyond that, Viacom CVS, they had results out uh, and uh, they went over pretty well. Unlike the figures that we saw uh, from some of the company's media peers, uh, Fox and Discovery Communications, notably those shares were down yesterday. Yesterday, in the wake of their results, uh, Viacom getting a much better reception. The shares are up 3.8% at the moment. Yeah, and from what I understand, too, the uh, airlines are moving as well on that news. American Airlines now up about 4%. Um, so we're definitely seeing some reaction, uh, no doubt about it, in that group as well. Delta's up about 2.3%. Hey, Gina, come on in on uh, this conversation. I am curious to get your perspective because I feel like um, increasingly so much of the Wall Street investment community is commenting on things like the elections, commenting on a vaccine approval and what it could mean for the financial markets. What's your analysis on this? Those are the things that are likely driving stocks. I mean, it's it's odd to be in the midst of earnings season, the second heaviest reporting week in earnings season, and see reactions to earnings as muted as mm. we've seen so far. When we look at the earnings season as a whole, we've had more than 80% of S&P 500 companies beat reporting day earnings estimate targets. That's the best we've seen on record, our records since 1992, and yet... The one-day price action in excess of the index in response to those earnings beats is about half of average. <laughs> so yeah. it does seem that, you know, even though we're beating expectations, even though we've honestly seen forward estimates start to move higher as well, as we clearly had baked in maybe a little too much economic constraint in the earnings outlook, it doesn't seem that earnings are actually driving, driving stocks. Um, I think in fits and starts that's been the case. But I do think that that's the reason why many analysts have started to focus on things like the upcoming election, focus on the percentage uh, chances of getting a vaccine anytime soon. Uh, certainly the fiscal policy efforts underway in Washington are, are a huge question mark, uh, but the market does seem to be anticipating some resolution to that in the positive uh, sometime soon. So there does appear to be a lot of other things that are really driving stocks right now, even though we're in the midst of a really important earnings season, frankly. Right. Right. Well, and this data dump that we're seeing, I mean, this is typical. It was all scheduled around uh, employment also seems to be very front of mind, you know. Yeah, I think that the economic numbers are, are interesting as well, especially the initial claims numbers. I w- I'm not surprised to see the market kind of thinking, oh, what do we really make of these initial claims numbers in the midst of all this turmoil around fiscal policy mm-hmm. claims fell? Is that merely just sort of gaming the system with respect to the fiscal policy expiration or the the extended uh, unemployment claims um, expiration. And I I do think the market's sort of waffling around here trying to figure out, you know, where do we really go from here? And frankly, for the last couple of months, we've we've had to price in better economic data. So the sort of the impetus that the economic data is able to give the market at this stage, you have to have a really, really strong beat to expectations in order for the market to really absorb that and move higher. 
All right, Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. This is the busiest time of the quarter for you, we know, because of all those earnings that you mentioned, because regardless of whether investors are swinging one way or the other, you guys are doing a huge amount of work on it, so we really appreciate you taking some time. Dave Wilson, our thanks to you as well. Looking forward to the chart of the day. I've been looking at it, Carolyn, trying to figure out, like, there's a king element to it, so could it be a Tom Petty situation? Could it be Elvis? Could it be Elvis? Elvis. We're going to see. We're going to see. Dave Could it Wilson. be the Lion King to oh continue our Disney thing? Exactly. We are a little <laughs> Disney obsessed these days. And by we, I mean me. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I got to say, Jason and I always look forward to this next guest because he's definitely one of the voices we look forward to when it comes to talking about COVID-19. Back with us is Dr. William Hazeltine. He is chairman and president of Access Health International. It's a nonprofit think tank. It's all about uh, improving access to high quality and affordable health care for people everywhere. He also has this great living ebook that came out this year. It's written to address questions about the virus from the perspective of different age groups. It's living because it's it's constantly being updated with new information. It's called A Family Guide to COVID. And Dr. Hazeltine joining us once again on the phone. Um, Bill, nice to have you back with us. Um, where should we start? Like, tell me what you think is most important when we look at what's going on with the virus in the U.S. globally and also the race to find some treatments and a cure. Not a cure, but a vaccine. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> Let me, <laughs> uh, first of all, thank you very much. And let me mention uh, that a new book, a new living ebook, uh, has just uh, arrived. It'll be up later today. It's uh, a COVID, um, a, a, a COVID guide to uh, back to school, a COVID guide to back to school. And uh, I mention it because that is the topic on Americans' minds. Every parent, and I'm a grandparent, and grandparents are absolutely upset, concerned, worried about what to do with their children going back to school. The preschoolers, the K through six, and the six through 12. And all those are very difficult and different issues, not to mention college age students too. And the shocking thing is, is that we don't have guidance nationally and we don't have any consistent way of thinking about it. So what I've tried to do is think through how to give people just the basics for how to make a decision. We just don't have that. It's, it's really shocking. The CDC doesn't give any good guidance. I'll give you something that really surprised me. Our National Academy of Sciences, which is a National Academy of Medicine, of Engineering, every academy that we've got, put together a panel. They looked at it. And the most shocking thing about that report was they said, we just don't know and we don't have guidance about what to do. That was our National Academy. Yeah. It is really upsetting. And so what's the first first couple questions we should be asking as parents, Bill? Well, I think the the way to look at it is, is to try to figure out what your risk is. And the first stratification for risk is how much infection, how much, how likely do you run into somebody who's contagious? That's, you know, people say transmission, it's really contagious. That's the word you should use. And how likely are you going to run into, you or your child going to run into somebody contagious? And we give a guideline, whether you're in green, yellow, orange, or red, by how many people per 100,000 are in your zip code and the zip codes that they come from to work in your school. And that gives you a guideline of whether you're in a hurricane and you should stay home in the basement, whether you're in a thunderstorm and you can stay home and not go out, or a heavy rainstorm if you go out if you're heavily equipped, uh, or it's a light rain and you really have to know where you're going and how well you'll be protected. Or if you were lucky enough and there's nowhere in the country we're really lucky enough yet to be on a sunny day, if you're in a sunny day. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is know your personal risk. Are there any health issues? First of all, your child has, like diabetes, like serious asthma, like obesity, or that you have and the child brings it back, or anybody living with you, like your parents or their grand- the child's grandparents. And the third 
and this is a lot harder, to judge what that school is doing. And for that, you as a parent have to take the initiative and go out and look at what that school is doing. Do you really have confidence in the people there? What is the plant like? Is it an old, broken-down facility? Is it a brand-new facility? What's the air handling like? What are they telling you? Are they dividing the kids up into small groups? Do they have face mask protection? Do they separate the children adequately? Those are things you as a parent have a responsibility to do before you send your kid out there because no matter what you're hearing from national news, kids do get infected. There's something that else that I think we have to demystify about the virus. This is a cold virus. It does a lot more damage than most cold viruses, but it's just like the colds you get every season. In fact, one-third of the colds you get are coronaviruses. We know how you get a cold. You send your kid to school and it comes back with a cold. Right. That's not new. This is, and one of those colds, one of the three colds you get every year is a coronavirus cold. So that's, I think that's basically the story of this book is just try to give people simple guidance of how to imagine what their risk is. And then if the risk is too high, you just don't send your kid to school. Right. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Carol Master. Let's get right back to our conversation with Dr. William Hazeltine. He is chair and president of Access Health International, author of a couple living ebooks. They are out there and being updated practically hour by hour, it feels like, because that's how fast this is moving. To your point, Carol, one is a family guide to COVID questions and answers for parents, grandparents, and children, and newly released as of today, a COVID back to school guide, questions and answers for parents and students. So, Bill... We could talk all day about back to school, but I I do want to ask you about, you know, maybe back to work, if I can, uh, because these are intertwined, of course. We need kids to go back to school. We need them to be learning in some form or fashion. But what have you learned as you talk to people about what it's going to take for people to feel good about going back to the office? You know, it shouldn't be surprising that it's almost exactly the same questions that you would ask about sending your kid to school. You're more concerned about the kid because you think you yourself have more control. But in fact, when you really think about it, you really don't have control of whom you meet. You have control of what you can do to protect yourself, but you don't know who that other person is. And therefore, the same kind of rules apply, which is how much is the infection in your area? What is your personal risk and the risk of those you live with? And then how much is your business doing what it must do, given the conditions that they're in. I would say there's one area that is driving this epidemic. There are three or four, but one that I'd like to focus on for just a minute is a lot of people who have to go to work. Either they're essential workers or they don't can't put food on the table if they don't go to work. And they don't have that choice of making the decision that you or I might have about I'm going to stay home or I'm not going to go to work or I have to do this. For those people, it's so important to make sure their work environment is safe. That's a responsibility of the organization that they work for, to make sure that the people that have to work there are safe. And that is enforced, I think, uh, let's put it, say, uh, irreproducibly across the country. There are some places that are going to be good about that and other places that aren't. And that is going to keep driving the infection. It's on all of us to put the pressure on our local governments to make sure that all workplaces are safe, even those places where people have to go to work, like the fire department, despite the fact that there is an epidemic raging. So that's something we all have to work with because it's protecting ourselves. Protecting them is protecting us. Yeah, it goes back to, I feel like, Bill, such a big thing that I guess maybe we're all realizing the importance of community, right? It's not just about us as individuals, but it's about taking care of really our community at large. And that's what we we need to be thinking about. I have to ask you, though, I am still kind of struck by Governor Cuomo on Monday. I was away for a week, came back, and he was very strident, very critical, talking about the potential of basically the federal government needing to come out and say, we made a mistake, we need to do a redo, we need to shut down again. Do you, would you be in favor of shutting down 
the country as a whole, like we saw in other countries where they have seemed to get ahead of the virus better than the U.S.? Would you be in favor of that? I'm not in favor of shutting down the whole country, but I would be in favor of shutting a place like Houston and most of Texas down or most of Florida down or most of uh, California, at least the southern half of California down. You have to be aware of what's going on. And if you aren't in control, which we're not in control of rising epidemics around the country, you've got to shut things down for five to six weeks. But that's not enough. You have to take a leaf out of what we learned from the Chinese. You know, when there are 60,000 people a day being infected in America, there are 50 people a day being infected in China. Let me say that again. 60,000 Americans get infected on some days and 50 people in China. It can be done. And it's not just shutting things down. It's making sure you contact trace and then mandatory isolation for all those exposed, not even infected, exposed. That's That's how to do it. It's not magic. We don't do anything like that, nor does any European country. And that's why when you look at Europe, they haven't controlled this. It can blow out of control just like it did here at any moment all throughout All right. Well, always good to catch up with you. And you're totally right. We're learning more. And there are some simpler solutions to this. Uh, And a lot of it comes down to how we're acting with each other and as a community, as you said, Carol. Dr. William Hazeltine, Chair and President of Access Health International. Check out his books, A COVID Back to School Guide. It's out today. Questions and answers for parents and students. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This is a story that brings so many things that we are interested in together, Carol. Totally. The state of healthcare, private equity, big money, and so many more. And I, not the least of which, great journalism and Bloomberg Business Week. We're happy to have with us Bloomberg News Senior Editor John Heckinger on this story, along with Bloomberg Business Week Editor Joel Weber. So Joel, tee this up for us. So John um, and Sabrina Vilmer, uh, who, who wrote the story together, um, uh, serviced a little bit ago um, about uh, a network of hospitals, for-profit hospitals, uh, primarily in Massachusetts called Steward. And when um, they kind of started doing some reporting about it, it was kind of interesting to me for a lot of the reasons that you said, uh, Jason, the one big one being that, um, you know, a pretty noteworthy um, uh, private equity uh, shop, a Cerberus, got involved about a decade ago, and what what was what the hospitals looked like before and after that has been pretty remarkable. And obviously, the backdrop to all of this is there's a pandemic raging. Um, and John, so what 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 did your reporting reveal? Well, as as you were saying, these hospitals were were struggling back in 2010 when uh, Cerberus, the private equity firm, bought them, um, and what we what we found is that um, the uh, the for-profit chain did invest a fair amount of money in sort of sprucing up the hospitals, but that many of the workers say that they were kind of shortchanged um, on staffing and maintenance. And um, so once the pandemic hit, um, they felt like they were, you know, even more exposed because there were just so, so many patients and not enough nurses. Um, so Can we talk about the mouse? Together. <laughs> Let's talk about the mouse. The mouse, <laughs> is always the a mouse, mouse plays a starring role. <laughs> That's right. Well, the, the, the story begins on <clears throat> morning of May 10th when a mouse wandered into a transformer and shorted out the electricity and left um, a building largely in the dark. And to the nurses, it kind of represented kind of the sort of penny-pinching ways of uh, the company that had uh, bought their sort of beloved hospital. Um, and so that's kind of um, became kind of a symbol for many of them of, about why uh, they were so concerned. And it wasn't just a building. Like, keep in mind, this is early May. The pandemic is happening. It w- happened to be there happened to be COVID patients throughout the hospital. And, and what ensued from there? Well, what happened is that because there was no backup power in uh, sort of this uh, in one unit where they were caring for patients, kind of keeping them separate from the COVID nineteen patients nurses had to move those patients, the uninfected patients, up into, uh, into an ICU that was packed with COVID patients. And uh, 
as one nurse told us, they, they sort of found it um, really kind of terrifying. And, you know, they felt that uh, it could potentially put patients at risk. So I guess what I want to ask you is, should we blame Cerberus for all of this? Did they not kind of make the changes, make the investments that one might have expected or hoped for? Well, I, I mean, to, to me, the main sort of one of the themes of the story is 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 kind of the magic of, of private equity. That mm-hmm. um, basically the way it was set up is that Cerberus very early on kind of guaranteed that it would make several times the amount of money that it invested. And whatever happened, whether the hospitals, you know, were struggling or whether they were succeeding wildly, um, they would, no matter what, make their make their money. And so it's kind of that's really what we were looking at. I mean, there's no question that that Cerberus and Stewart did make investments in the hospital. But at this time, um, even before the pandemic, they were struggling financially. So you have this contrast between how the hospitals are operating and how much um, how much their investors have profited. You know, John, I feel like and this is such terrific reporting by you and Sabrina, and it really cuts to the core of one of the biggest issues I feel like we are facing when it comes to Wall Street, when it comes to private equity, when it comes to corporate responsibility in many ways. And I think it's brought to the fore so much more because of this pandemic that we're living in, which is essentially at what cost are you making your profit? And I think that's, it feels especially true in the healthcare arena because based on reporting you've done and Sabrina Wilmer, your co-author has done, and Heather Perlberg on the private equity team, I mean, this is a theme that carries throughout the American healthcare system, which is, you know, private equity sort of coming in and seeing the ability to make money by cutting costs. And in some cases, it feels like cutting corners. And one of the other issues is that, um, you know, there was there was concern that private equity backed companies were getting uh, bailout money, right? And um, and that and did did in fact happen to hospitals that were backed by by private equity, including including Stewart. Um, they got something like four hundred million dollars in in loans from the package, and another hundred million dollars in grants. And so I think the you know the question now that sort of Congress is looking at is, um, you know. You know, Wall Street was supposed to be uh, a source of money for you know and for private equity, and should all these companies be getting getting taxpayer bailouts? John, you know, one thing I just want to kind of bring it back to is ultimately, um, uh, Cerberus was able to to kind of exit uh, somewhat and and walk away with what? What's the where do things stand, and how could things develop um, in the the months and years to come? Well, Cerberus put in about a quarter of a billion dollars, and all told, um, Cerberus's investors tripled um, tripled their money. And in, over the last um, in May, um, Cerberus sort of started backing away from the investment and gave control to the doctors um, who were running the company. But they still have uh, they own a, a three hundred and fifty million dollar bond. Um, so they're getting interest uh, on this on this payment, and if in five years, when it comes due, they could uh, potentially make another three hundred and fifty million dollars if uh, if the company you know continues operating, and if the company uh, the company thrives and does you know doubles in size, they could make much more than that. So um, they basically have already made triple their money. Yeah, they could make several times more of that. And as you say, Stewards still remains on a financial knife's edge, so their financial situation is still tricky. Um, it's a great read. It's great reporting, as Jason mentioned, um, and we'll we'll put that out on Twitter too, so that we can share it a little bit more with uh, our listeners. John, thank you so much, John Heckinger. He's senior editor at Bloomberg News. Really, a, a phenomenal story. Joining us on the phone from Boston, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Jill Weber on the phone in Massachusetts. What you? No. I mean, you know these guys a lot. Like <sighs> the the healthcare aspect of this, I think, is one oh, of the most fascinating tricky. because it calls into question, I think, so much of what we talk about, about private equity, but also beyond, which is, what are companies' responsibilities? And they are not just to shareholders. And I think we're coming around to that, but it is slow and it is painful, especially when it comes to the healthcare business. Check out that story. Check out all of Heather Perlberg's work as well. She's done some phenomenal work. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. 
All right, let's do a little Business Week economics now, Carol, if we can, because as we mentioned with Gina Martin-Adams at the top of the show, a lot of eco data this week, some this morning, some yesterday, and a big day tomorrow with that monthly jobs report. We're going to break it down with Francis Donald, Global Chief Economist, Head of Macroeconomic Strategy for Manulife Investment Management, joining us on the phone from Toronto. First of all, Francis, how are you? What's going on? What's life like uh, up there? I, actually, I believe you're in Montreal, right? Did I get that wrong? That's correct. I am correct. I am in Montreal. I am an economist in the middle of the largest economic crisis of our time. So it is both uh, extremely exciting and what we were born to do and also uh, very overwhelming and a lot of new things to have to think about, things that we've never thought about before in this profession, really. Yeah, and one of which, and we've mentioned this on this program before, one of which is we didn't think about weekly jobless claims very much at all for a long time. And now we literally like have an alarm set on every Thursday morning to look at this number. Tell us what you saw in that number and what it may portend as we, you know, that's that's closer to real-time data or it's cl- it's a lesser lag than work, what we're going to see tomorrow. What does it tell us about the employment picture? Well, the headlines I saw on my Bloomberg terminal is that, you know, we have uh, the be- the best initial jobless claims since the pandemic started, that we had this beat, you know, um, and, and this to me just was fairly shocking interpretation, given that we still have over a million Americans a week who are filing for the first time for unemployment insurance, for claims. Uh, this messaging to me is very concerning because it isn't really the number of jobless claims, or even tomorrow what non-farm payrolls figure is, that matters as much as the composition of it underneath. And in some ways, these initial jobless claims, these million every week, are more concerning to me than the multiples of that that we saw in March and April. And that's because we know the people being laid off now are not being laid off because of temporary closures of coffee shops and movie theaters. They're being laid off in a more permanent sense. So these job losses are much more sinister and nefarious for the economy than what we experienced in April. The fact that we have a million people a week who are going unemployed should be something that weighs on us heavily. And while we may have beat the economist's expectation, that is missing the forest for the trees here. You know, and I do wonder, Francis, man, these numbers are already staggering, right, when they come out, as you said, one million a week. But I do wonder, are you anticipating that we get kind of another drop down? I don't know whether it's in a few months, whether it's the beginning of next year. You know, when companies really have to say, There's just no demand out there for our services, or certainly not like it was, and we've just got to let go more workers. Well, a lot of what the data is going to show us is I I don't think a lot of our charts is going to show a double dip or a W type of environment. But what I do anticipate is that we're going to see a stalling out of the momentum. And actually, a lot of our high-frequency indicators showed us that that started in early July. And even initial jobless claims are showing us a similar story, which is that we still incrementally recover off of the depression that was March and April, but we certainly don't go back to pre-COVID levels. What I find interesting is if we were to stabilize, for example, at minus 5 to minus 10% GDP, we might see headlines telling us that's an improvement over the 30% drop we saw in Q2, but it would still be some of the, if not the worst economic data that we've seen outside of this pandemic. So we are moving from depression to recession. And if you're a second derivative type gal like I am, of course, that's good. And markets react to that as well. But the fundamental story here is that we are a long way out of the woods. And actually, the nature of this recession is going to change quite a bit in the next coming months, particularly if we do not get um, an extension on unemployment insurance top up very, very soon. If we don't get that, then August and September is going to be a real tough uh, period for a lot of economic data and for a lot of people, too. I'm going to pause for a second so that Carol Masser can add that to her list of T-shirt names because I want you to wear a T-shirt that says, I'm a second derivative kind of gal. (laughs) Because that's brilliant. I love it. Um, So, Francis, you know, when we think about what's going on in Washington, you know, that's another thing that investors are really reacting to is, all right, Congress, maybe they're going to get their act together. Maybe the president is going to sweep in with some executive action. How much can you, do you sort of model in a fiscal solution here, given that something we hope is going to get across the finish line? It's the only solution. The Federal Reserve is preventing a credit crisis and ensuring we have plenty of liquidity in the system, but they cannot 
help everyday Americans get food on the table when we're in the largest employment shock of our time. So right now, the big challenge is we know April and May and June were substantially bolstered by this bridge created by the unemployment insurance top-up and other uh, additional forms of support, but that rug is being pulled out from under us. I think when I look at that city surprise index that shows us the largest spread between economic data um, expectations and the actual data, the reason that we have been overly pessimistic in general as a profession is that we've underappreciated just how sizable those fiscal transfers have been. And I know there are some who are going to say, yes, but the extent of fiscal has disincentivized hiring activity or disincentivized people looking for jobs. But there simply isn't enough hiring activity. As much as we got initial jobless claims this morning, we also saw a 576% year-over-year increase in job cuts. 576% increase in challenger job cuts. So there is not a lot of hiring activity happening here. And if we do not have some additional support for Americans, um, even if it's applied retroactively and it takes a couple of weeks to work its way through the system, I think August is going to be a very challenging month. I, I call it August an air pocket where we actually see probably a, a lot of really difficult, strange distortions in our data. Hopefully they correct themselves in September and October. But August, I think, might be one of the toughest months in this recession, um, even more tough than, than the initial shock of April. Well, a lot of uncertainty out there, but one thing for certain, Francis, I know we're going to be coming back to you a lot because your analysis is just fascinating to hear. And uh, like we said, we're adding you to our T-shirt list. We have just a, a T-shirt <laughs> list of, of really smart sayings, so we're going to keep doing You'll that. like some of them, like we have uh, the <laughs> Jay Powell Lending Not Spending Tour of 2020. <laughs> like, I feel like you could uh, pull that one off, Francis. All right. Our thanks to Francis Donald up at Many Life Asset Management, uh, really one of our go-to voices here. And uh, always look forward to catching up with her, Carol. And I do want to be a second derivative kind of gal. Like I feel like you are. I mean, just you're, you studied that. economics. You're I did. you're a, a burgeoning. Uh, I you, love that. you would be an economist in a different life. I think. <laughs> I would. I would. You could Our, be Francis Donald. <laughs> Only in my dreams. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, we do want to talk a little bit about uh, the ETF world. Uh, Ed Rosenberg is back with us, head of ETFs at American Century uh, Investments, $190 billion in assets under management, joining us, I believe, on the phone from Chicago. Ed, good to have you back with us. Um, I got to ask you, are you in Chicago right now? I am, yes. Okay. Well, good to know. How's Chicago going? Chicago's great. I mean, it's perfect weather. It's uh, better than when I used to live on the East Coast. I don't get any of those storms. <laughs> yeah, how, tell how, me about it. Oh, how, God, Ed. You, a, don't, you don't know the half of it. I mean, that really swept through here. I live in Westchester, and it knocked out power. I mean, it, it was it was second only to Hurricane Sandy, a distant second, but in terms of knocking everything out. So, uh, in any case, good so for has, you. How's the virus situation there? I'm sorry, what'd you say? The virus situation. I mean, you know, in Chicago, I know it's, it's pretty rough with what's been going on, and, yeah. but it hasn't, from my understanding, it hasn't grown that much. Where I live, which is a small town just west of the city, it's really, it's quiet here for that. Um, mm. So, I mean, everyone's wearing their masks, doing the right thing, but it's still the, the spread overall in the, I don't know, six months that we'll call it, that's been really around. Uh, my town's only had 132 cases, so it's been relatively quiet on that front, which is good. Everyone's really doing the right thing in the town and keeping it from really spreading. And it is interesting to sort of see that play out on, on an almost micro level, right? I mean, in the sense that when you do see a group of people doing, you know, what are now widely considered by medical experts to be the right things, masks, social distancing, washing your hands and all that, it, it does tend to, to work, but I digress. Uh, you are the head of exchange-traded <laughs> funds, ETF, yeah. as Carol mentioned. Talk to us about this moment, especially for ESG, because it feels like we're in a moment that has only accelerated over the course of 2020. 2020, it's fair to say, has been a little bit of a funky year, but, but what are you seeing in terms of flows and, and even just in terms of general interest? So let's start with the general interest with ESG. I mean, I think it's, it's picked up. What's been interesting about this year is companies that are considered more ESG have performed better. Now, there's different approaches to ESG. You know, there's, there's exclusionary, which tends to be a little bit different. There's impact. And then there's really sort of digging in and finding those companies 
that are environmental, social, and governance. And I think when you do the second and third aspect of it, you're really able to find companies that are starting to be considered quality across the board. And, and quality in a year like this, when there's been so much volatility, has definitely been rewarded in a lot of ways. Because if earnings are going to continue, I know listening to the, the update of what's driving the Dow or driving the stocks today, the companies that were talked about were definitely quality companies. And so I think that's really helping ESG as they become more quality and more top of mind for people. It's going to become more popular as an investment theme. And a company like American Century, you know, just to add this to it, being owned by the Stowers Institute for Medical Research, I mean, we really have a unique understanding of ESG and how we apply it across our board. So one thing I'm curious about, Ed, is where investors are committing money, new money right now. What are the flows that you guys have seen in and out of American Century? Uh, And I'm curious if the flows, how they have changed kind of as we've moved our way um, through, for many of us, you know, this work from home, stay at home environment and the impact of the virus. So it's interesting. From an overall perspective, from ETFs in general and then American Century, what you saw was you saw a lot of international investing the first part of the year, Mm -hmm. and that has substantially faded and gone to negative. So money's flown out of that. And where you've seen money going is, I don't want to, it's not what I would call flight to safety, but it's flight to some higher yielding bonds, so corporates across the board, as well as some aggregate. But U.S., it's really been focused specifically on the U.S. market. And then if you look specifically, it's what you've been, what you guys I'm sure have been talking about, which is technology, mm. right? Whether it's, you know, from FANG stocks across the board, people are going into that. And even some of our ETFs, we launched a, a new ETF earlier this year in the middle of the pandemic, um, just focused dynamic growth, which has some of that technology exposure. I mean, it's been gathering assets fairly quickly for a new product. And quite frankly, it's a new structure for you guys. It's a semi-transparent structure, which was the first of its kind just to get out there. And people are drawing interest to that more than anything else that I've launched in a long time. What does that mean, semi-transparent? So as you know, with with ETFs, holdings generally are displayed daily Mm -hmm. through a function, whether it's called the basket, which shows you all the holdings. These semi-transparent structures do not show the holdings daily. Mm. That is the only difference. And so what that means basically is the only time the investor can see what's in the fund is either on a monthly basis with the top 10 holdings or from us when we release the quarterly holdings 15 days after quarter end. That's why the would only I time wa- they'll see exactly what's in it. Just quickly, 30 seconds, why would I want that over a fully transparent? Well, if you're really looking for something that has the portfolio manager's best ideas without the fear of front running so they can really offer potentially an alpha generating portfolio mm. similar to what you'd get in a mutual fund, which you can't get in an ETF, that's exactly why you'd want it. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. All cool. right, Ed Rosenberg, thank you so yes. much. Really good to catch up with you, get a view of what's happening there uh, on the ground just outside Chicago. Ed Rosenberg, head of exchange traded funds for American Century Investments. I mean, look, this that corner, I, I, I was going to call it the corner of the market, like that side of the market has mm-hmm. just exploded when it comes to yeah. uh, ETFs. I was reminded about of that when you were out and uh, hanging out with uh, Ms. Scarlett Fu when she was with me. She knows so much about TFIQ. Somebody was tweeting at me like, when are you going to bring it back? Yeah, I'm when's like, it coming back? Yeah, Scarlett. <laughs> I know. It's her show. It's her show, man. Hopefully soon. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Happy to have back with us Bill Smead, Chief Investment Officer at Smead Capital Management. He joins us from the West Coast, the Pacific Northwest, the Seattle area, to be a little more precise. So, Bill, you know, I listen to Charlie Pellet all day, every day, and he pops into our show and he tells us what's going on in the market. And he is increasingly and has been for a while, I guess, using the word record to talk about the S&P and certainly to talk about the NASDAQ. Let's talk about the NASDAQ if we can. Let's talk about tech stocks because 
What a run they've had, and it just defies gravity in many cases, and I wonder what you make of it. Well, uh, I'm 40 years into being in this industry, and, uh, you know, when, when you are a longtime veteran, you try to train yourself to be excited about meritorious things and wonderful companies that are in the wrong part of their business cycle uh, for one reason or another. And you try to avoid getting involved in uh, very strong momentum and popularity among things that are near the top of their particular industry business cycle. And the COVID thing obviously has uh, exacerbated the misery of some people that were in uh, down cycles, and it has caused a whole layer of additional momentum to those things that were already popular but are benefiting from the, the kind of voluntary prison that we operate in. All right. Is that your way of saying it's tough being a value guy right now? <laughs> testing is not the right word. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not testing. easy. No, it, it you know it was rough in ninety eight ninety nine. Yeah. Uh, that was rough because your next door neighbor was doubling their money on an IPO, uh, you know, twice a month, and and you know wondered why uh, you couldn't get them any shares. Uh, and, and this time, I mean, it's literally. It's the businesses that virtually everybody is forced to interact with on a daily basis. And the problem is that it would be a lot like 1972 where you, you were a Coca-Cola drinker and you, you recognized how addictive and wonderful of a business that Coca-Cola was. And, and then you bought a bunch of it in 1972 at about you know 80 times earnings. And, and then you woke up 10 years later and you, you, you lost money for 10 years, uh, quite a bit, as a matter of fact. And, and you got into a different part of the cycle for stocks and a different part of the cycle for, for their particular industry. And uh, it's just hard to visualize that stuff right now. We, I, you know, I, I have swallowed so much humble pie that I... <laughs> I, yeah. I literally could start a humble pie chain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tough out there for sure in, in many ways. And yet the market, you know, you know, continues, continues to grind in, in many ways. So where do you find opportunity here then, especially given all these different headlines coming out us that are part health crisis, part economic crisis, part trade tensions, like all of it seems to be coming at us from every direction every day. Yeah, so, so first off, uh, and I, I, I love the question, I, I love your premise, the, you're just looking for great long-term risk-reward relationships when you're us. So I don't want to mope too much. Uh, I think if you look back at the last 10 years, I think we've made something like 13% compounded net of costs for our end investors, right? So it's like, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not here to mope. It's been a great era. And ironically, we're fully invested, right? We're, 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 not, we're not one of these groups that's sitting in 20% cash waiting for Armageddon to come. Uh, 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 so, so we're, you know, we're, we're not there. But back to your point, uh, the production of oil in the United States has fallen off a cliff and the rigs are shut down and it just appears that at some point a year or year and a half from now that if we get back to 90% of the economy the, the, when that lack of supply runs into actual demand if we're at 40 a barrel or 42 a barrel right now where are we going to be when some kind of demand normalization comes up in a year and a half or two years. And therefore that looks attractive when Warren Buffett is backing up the truck on bank America, which is a stock that we've owned since 2012 and, and done extremely well on, even though it's corrected sharply and not come back from the, from the COVID debacle. Uh, 
Buffett was mortified May 1st, right? I mean, if yeah. you watch the virtual yeah. annual meeting, he was yeah. mortified. And, and uh, it, so you'd have to ask him the question, why did you buy Dominion Energy and why are you buying Bank America? And, and the answer to that would be that a lot of the uncertainties that, that, that he couldn't really get his arms wrapped around May 1st, he's more comfortable wrapping his arms around them now. You know, we've been talking this week, and I was talking with a bunch of CEOs about scenario planning, right? This is something that Shell really created back in the 70s, where you start to think through those wild scenarios and then kind of plan your business around that. As an investor, what's the scenario planning um, bill that we need to be doing right now? Just got about 40 seconds. One of our scenarios is playing out, and actually COVID-19 has been the positive catalyst, which is, we talked to people at DR Horton today, people under 34 bought 40% of the new homes they built in the last couple of months. Hmm. And that is something that most people were not expecting, which is that the millennials would buy houses like prior generations. They're just doing it five to seven years later. Very cool. Very interesting. Um, thank you so much for them. You're right. And we've been watching that housing sector, talking a lot about kind of what we're seeing. And those trends have been, you know, really, really uh, interesting to follow. Bill Smead, thank you so much. Smead Capital Market. Bill has really seen a lot of market cycles uh, over his 40 years investing, uh, about $2.2 billion in assets under management, uh, joining us on the phone from Seattle. Yes, it's, great perspective. And yes. listen, that long-term view, it's really important to keep in mind because it's easy to get caught up in the minute to minute, the tick by tick, uh, certainly in a market like this. Well, we do want to talk a little bit about uh, the ETF world. Uh, Ed Rosenberg is back with us, head of ETFs at American Century uh, Investments, $190 billion in assets under management, joining us, I believe, on the phone from Chicago. Ed, good to have you back with us. Um, I got to ask you, are you in Chicago right now? I am, yes. Okay. Well, good to know. How's Chicago going? Chicago's great. I mean, it's perfect weather. It's uh, better than when I used to live on the East Coast. I don't get any of those storms. <laughs> yeah, how's, tell how's, me about it. Oh, how, God, Ed. You, you, don't, you don't know the half of it. I mean, that really swept through here. I live in Westchester, and it knocked out power. I mean, it, it was it was second only to Hurricane Sandy, a distant second, but in terms of knocking everything out. So, uh, in any case, good so for how's, you. How's the virus situation there? I'm sorry, what'd you say? The virus situation. I mean, you know, in Chicago, I know it's, it's pretty rough with what's been going on, in, yeah. but it hasn't, from my understanding, it hasn't grown that much. Where I live, which is a small town just west of the city, it's really, it's quiet here for that. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, everyone's wearing their masks, doing the right thing, but it's still the, the spread overall in the, I don't know, six months that we'll call it, that's been really around. Uh, my town's only had 132 cases, so it's been relatively quiet on that front, which is good. Everyone's really doing the right thing in the town and keeping it from really spreading. And it is interesting to sort of see that play out on, on an almost micro level, right? I mean, in the sense that when you do see a group of people doing, you know, what are now widely considered by medical experts to be the right things, masks, social distancing, washing your hands and all that, it, it, it does tend to, to work. But I digress. Uh, you are the head of exchange traded <laughs> funds, ETF, yeah. as Carol mentioned. Talk to us about this moment, especially for ESG, because it feels like we're in a moment that has only accelerated over the course of 2020. 2020, it's fair to say, has been a little bit of a funky year. But, but what are you seeing in terms of flows and, and even just in terms of general interest? So let's start with the general interest with ESG. I mean, I think it's, it's picked up. What's been interesting about this year is companies that are considered more ESG have performed better. Now, there's different approaches to ESG. You know, there's, there's exclusionary, which tends to be a little bit different. There's impact. And then there's really sort of digging in and finding those companies that are environmental, social, and governance. And I think when you do the second and third aspect of it, you're really able to find companies that are starting to be considered quality across the board. And, and quality in a year like this, when there's been so much volatility, has definitely been rewarded in a lot of ways. Because if earnings are going to continue, I know listening to the, the update of what's driving the Dow or driving the stocks today, the companies that were talked about were definitely quality companies. And so I think that's really helping ESG as they become more quality and more top of mind for people. 
it's going to become more popular as an investment theme. And a company like American Century, you know, just to add this to it, being owned by the Stowers Institute for Medical Research, I mean, we really have a unique understanding of ESG and how we apply it across our board. So one thing I'm curious about, Ed, is where investors are committing money, new money right now. What are the flows that you guys have seen in and out of American Century? Uh, and I'm curious if the flows, how they have changed kind of as we've moved our way um, through, for many of us, you know, this work from home, stay at home environment and the impact of the virus. So it's interesting. From an overall perspective, from ETFs in general and then American Century, what you saw was you saw a lot of international investing the first part of the year, Mm -hmm. and that has substantially faded and gone to negative. So money's flown out of that. And where you've seen money going is, I don't want to, it's not what I would call flight to safety, but it's flight to some higher yielding bonds, so corporates across the board, as well as some aggregate. But U.S., it's really been focused specifically on the U.S. market. And then if you look specifically, it's what you've been, what you guys I'm sure have been talking about, which is technology, Mm. right? Whether it's, you know, from FANG stocks across the board, people are going into that. And even some of our ETFs, we launched a a new ETF earlier this year in the middle of the pandemic, um, just focused dynamic growth, which has some of that technology exposure. I mean, it's been gathering assets fairly quickly for a new product. And quite frankly, it's a new structure for you guys. It's a semi-transparent structure, which was the first of its kind just to get out there. And people are drawing interest to that more than anything else that I've launched in a long time. What does that mean, semi-transparent? So as you know, with with ETFs, holdings generally are displayed daily Mm -hmm. through a function, whether it's called the basket, which shows you all the holdings. These semi-transparent structures do not show the holdings daily. That is the only difference. And so what that means basically is the only time the investor can see what's in the fund is either on a monthly basis with the top 10 holdings or from us when we release the quarterly holdings 15 days after quarter end. That's why the would only I time wa- they'll see exactly what's in it. Just quickly, 30 seconds, why would I want that over a fully transparent? Well, if you're really looking for something that has the portfolio manager's best ideas without the fear of front running so they can really offer potentially an alpha generating portfolio mm. similar to what you'd get in a mutual fund, which you can't get in an ETF, that's exactly why you'd want it. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. All well, right, Ed Rosenberg, thank you so yes. much. Really good to catch up with you, get a view of what's happening there uh, on the ground just outside Chicago. Ed Rosenberg, head of exchange-traded funds for American Century Investments. I mean, look, this that corner, I, I, I was going to call it the corner of the market, like that side of the market has mm-hmm. just exploded when it comes to yeah. uh, ETFs. I was reminded about of that when you were out and uh, hanging out with uh, Ms. Scarlett Fu when she was with me. She knows so much about TFIQ. Somebody was tweeting at me like, when are you going to bring it back? Yeah, when's it coming back? Yeah, Scarlett. (laughs) I know. It's her show. It's her show, man. Hopefully soon. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.